Welcome back or welcome to Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, Brett Hornig and I sit down with Josh Rowe, a performance nutritionist from Morton, to talk about all things ultra running nutrition. One thing to note before we get started, we do have a financial interest in this episode. Specifically, Morton is a sponsor of the Single Track Podcast. They helped make our coverage of the Western States 100 possible, and part of our sponsorship agreement included an episode with someone inside their organization. That said, and I'm sure you'll be able to tell from the content of this conversation, our stoke levels were pretty darn high to talk with Josh, and we learned a ton about how they're working in concert with athletes, people like Killian Journey and Tom Evans, to establish the cutting edge of ultra-running endurance nutrition strategies. So with that, let's get started. Josh Rowe, it's a pleasure to have you here live with us in the single track studio, Olympic Valley, California. We we're not publishing it this the week of Western States. It'll be out, I believe, the Wednesday or Thursday after States. But I think before we get into the nuts and bolts of all of Brett and I's nutrition-based questions, tell the audience your role at Morton, what that means in lay terms, and what you're doing here at Western States today. Yeah, so yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, it's a bit daunting actually from the guests you've had the last couple of days <laughs> then to kind of have me. Uh, yeah, it feels like a big act to follow. But um, yeah, my role at Morton is I'm a performance scientist. So I do a lot of product development, work in the, um, the chemistry and formulation team, within the nutrition team. And it's a bit of a kind of dual role where we do yeah product development, but then also a lot of kind of sports science support with our athletes. And that's kind of how we kind of work in terms of our R&D is we do a lot of kind of investigative work on kind of sports such as I say like ultra endurance running, Ironman, marathon running and really try and understand the sport in its whole entirety so not only just from a nutritional perspective but also from a psychological uh, physiological perspective as well so yeah and really the the last couple of days it's very much for us is understanding ultra endurance if you look at the um, from a from a scientific perspective, there's not really a great deal of research that really supports like ultra endurance in terms from a nutritional perspective and the nutritional strategies. So we've got a big project over the last year, kind of working with like Killian um, and Tom to really understand ultra endurance and how we can really not only um, improve it, the nutritional strategies, but also just see what is going on there from a physiological standpoint. You, you said there that there are still a lot of unknowns in our sport when it comes to nutrition. Morton, of course, is working to address those. Is that the reason why you're so fascinated in this space, that there's so many unknowns out there and you have the opportunity this year and in the ensuing years to crack some codes out there? Or, or what brings you into this space so excited? Uh, yeah, it's mostly exactly that. If we look at the, the spaces where we're pretty, very dominant in, like marathon running, cycling, there's a whole body of research that really supports like the athlete's nutritional strategy. So there's a lot of research that says like athletes can, what carbohydrates they need, the types, the dose, the frequency, and also how it's kind of trained the gut. But then if you look at the literature there for ultra endurance, it's almost a bit of like a, a black hole. There's nothing there. Then there's like general kind of advice and recommendations, but there's nothing really what's got fully understanding what's going on with the athlete. And the beauty really of like ultra running is no no distance is the same so almost like the data we're collecting say during utmb is completely different to what's going to be at western states and that's another kind of exciting bit is because 
not only is the race completely different but also how the athletes need to kind of train and adapt to that is almost it's completely two different events so for us it's just understanding the sport because not many people do and i think the last couple of years like ultra endurance has got more maybe like professionalized and yeah for us it's just to kind of like help that and give more scientific recommendations not only just for the elite athletes but also just for the everyday athletes as well since you've come into the you know the research and development side of the sport are there any unknowns that have now become known since you've uh, been working with mm. morton or like any i don't know if i want to say like major breakthroughs but things that you know were maybe once believed that More have clarity. already changed quite a bit since you've been in you know, um, with them that's a good question i'd say it's definitely most probably the abundance of carbohydrates required um most probably a couple of years before that it was very much just as a an event where everyone knows you need to co- almost completely it's kind of like the iron man it's like the fourth um, discipline and that's kind of like with ultra endurances very mm. much just like a i think killian calls it like a just um a moving buffet it's just you've got to constantly <laughs> trying to eat and what we've seen is most probably in the last couple of years previously it was very much a how much carbo- how, how much calories you can get in mm-hmm. and no one was really not, not too bothered about the, the macronutrient distribution or the micronutrient it was very much just let's just get as many ca- um, calories in as possible whereas now that kind of is really shifting to carbohydrates it's how much carbohydrates you can get in and if you can maximize your carbohydrate intake there's effects there where it can not only say improve your performance may help kind of stabilize or preserve maybe some of your, your glycogen stores but there's also now research that's showing that the bigger carbohydrate intake you can have it can help with maybe say like your muscle recovery or help maybe delay the the, the muscle fatigue so this is what's getting interesting in the sense of because the races are getting quicker like this week uh, this weekend they're saying that maybe the second half is going to be pretty quick mm-hmm. um or maybe the last kind of 10 miles to 10k and what we're seeing is like the more carbohydrates you can have during kind of the early stages because you'll be able to kind of regulate and kind of help maybe well yeah preserve maybe the the muscle glycogen but the, well your liver glycogen um but then also the the soreness as well the fatigue it means that the athletes must probably going to be able to go quicker in that kind of second half and that's if we look what we've seen from cycling to uh, marathon running before when morton came onto the onto the kind of the stage the marathon was very much a you hold a pace and then whoever could kind of like it was just the second half was who could last the longest mm-hmm. who would almost be able to delay the onset fatigue whereas and that's and that's complete change now like you look at the marathon times people are running negative splits they're running a lot quicker in the second half and this is almost what we're starting to see now with with an ultra running because the nutrition is starting to get more refined it means that the athletes as less people are kind of bonking or blowing up it's always going to be the case but it's less is going to happen yeah it definitely seems like in the last few years there's been a huge narrative shift uh in terms of i consume this many calories per hour to i consume this many grams of carbohydrates per hour um and it seems like yeah there's still i would say the ultra world is still lacking um in regards to like what the current cutting edges and it seems like from an endurance sport kind of standpoint running has always been a handful of years behind cycling is there anything in the cycling world that's being done right now that you still see like being like 
glaringly omitted in the running and ultra world um i think again it comes down to the quantities and maybe how cyclists are using their carbohydrates mm-hmm. um but then also there's things like bicarb that's been very much uh in cycling it's been very predominant it's been used um quite a lot but what, been, what are the benefits there um, with bicarb is very much a, a product which kind of like helps regulate your acid base balance so when you work in a really high intensity you'll produce lactic acid people always really associate that lactic acid which kind of starts to um stop the athlete from almost exercising it starts to the onset of fatigue but actually it's not the lactic acid or not the lactate the build-up of lactate which is causing um the impairment of performance it's the 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 abundance of hydrogen ions that are going to be in either the muscle and the bloodstream and your body naturally produces bicarbonate but by ingesting sodium bicarbonate what it means is you can elevate your abundance of bicarbonate in the bloodstream so when you start to exercise at high intensity the body has more capacity to kind of buffer them hydrogen ions, which means it can kind of, yeah, delay maybe the onset fatigue, allow athletes to run, have a bigger power output, run further for longer. Um, so that's really interesting. And I think, as we said, like we're in cycling, it's been very much like, it's been well trusted, like sodium bicarb, but cyclists really haven't really used it just because of the, the GI issues, what's normally kind of been pretty much plagued of um, sodium bicarb ingestion. But with Morton kind of resolving a lot of that, it's kind of opened up the door for bicarb. And what we've seen is we always knew it was going to be very kind of popular um, within cycling. But then now there's, it's starting to kind of transpire into running. And what we're seeing as well is the use of it within ultra endurance, which again for us is very much in this uh, early kind of development phase of understanding the true effects of sodium bicarb during the ultra endurance. Yeah, there's definitely uh, was a lot of. Uh, I don't know, a lot of, I don't know if it was even speculation, a lot of chatter around Killian coming through Cormier and sitting down. What was that bowl? It was this translucent bowl with the Morton logo on it. And he was just going to town eating this weird goopy stuff and he gets his finger pricked. And (laughs) everyone, I mean, there's thousands of people watching the live stream and not a single person had any idea what it was that he was eating, you know, after now that the product has come out, you know, it was, he was eating sodium bicarb. Um, so there's still benefits to even consuming the, the bicarb in a 20 hour race when even someone like Killian might not touch those, you know, high, you know, higher zones that are going to build up that lactate in the blood. Yeah. So this is, again, is really still like in the like the early explorative phases and we're quite fortunate that we have like the likes of like tom killian as like our guinea pigs we yeah. have other athletes but it was very much a we did a series of before as the build-up say to utmb killian was he did a series of races and we did a lot of kind of support and testing and one of the the times we kind of tested the bicarb and if you must probably looked at the literature it would very much you'd say there's no reason to use bicarb. Mm-hmm. It's very much within that power domain that anything from I don't know, 90 seconds to 10 minute kind of range. But what we see, especially with like ultra endurance runners is if you look at the whole entirety of the race, yes, the most probably the intensity is relatively quite low, but there's almost them kind of micro periods where if they're kind of going up a hill or mm-hmm. there's kind of get to a technical um, component of the course, 
chances are the body's going to be mostly working at high capacity and they'll start to produce a significant amount of lactate. And also what we've seen is from like the research is that when you're measuring lactate, it's very much from the blood is almost like a it's like a whole body measurement. You're measuring the concentration of lactate in the body. And what we find is that actually most probably when an athlete, say like an ultra-endurance athlete, them, them components where they are, where it is technical, and say going up a sharp kind of like hill, um, they are most going to produce a significant amount of lactate. But because the intensity, again, is maybe relatively low, mm. that concentration, so some of the muscle groups will be working really hard, whereas some will make it work, won't be working as hard. So then the, to try and identify it in the concentration of blood, it doesn't really, you're not going to say, see the similar responses of, say, a track athlete where they're producing massive lactate responses. Mm-hmm. But what we're getting from the, is like the feedback and from when we're evaluating some of the data is that, again, it just it helps kind of like regulate the acid-base balance. So it means that when they're doing the kind of them either it gets technical or they're getting having them kind of micro periods where they're working at really high intensity their acid base balance is more regulated so it means that they can almost the perception of effort maybe feel a little bit less but then also the recovery and it all almost comes down to if you can kind of regulate the acid base balance in a more controlled manner for the whole entirety of the race so if it's say a 20 hour race or a 15 hour race or maybe 14 hours and 30 minutes this weekend Hopefully, um, 1428. 1428, yeah. Um, it means that if you can regulate it for as long as possible, when it gets to kind of that serious part of the race, or I don't know when the serious part, but if it gets that final bit where it's going to be quick, most probably the last final miles, the with the bicarb, it's meant that you've, it's just helped regulate the, the muscles and the acid base balance. So they're going to most probably be in a better place and better position to pick up the pace. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to talk about the differences between a liquid-based calorie strategy, carbohydrate strategy at Western States and more of like a, what do you call it? Like a, like a a physical carb strategy at Western States. Like we've heard Tom Evans talk about how in 2019 he was uh, completely liquid-based carbs. We just had Arlen Glick on the show. He has a chance to win Western States on Saturday. I believe he's doing uh, the Morton 320 mix and then he'll throw some Coca-Cola in there at times, but a lot of these top performers are going liquid calories the whole way. Can you talk about some of the theory behind that strategy for a race like Western where it's like 15, 16 hours to win it? Uh, and then when you would switch away from that, like as the race gets longer, like at a UTMB? Yeah, I think it all just comes down to the intensity of the race. Like if you look at Western State, it is a quicker race. And like, yes, 14 hours is a long time, but if you look at it from the whole entire like if it's going to be a quick race so having things where it's maybe in like more solid form and having say your carbohydrates in that way it just means that the the gi track is going to have to metabolize and break that down and work a little bit harder and if the if there are athletes are already going to be working at most probably a relative high intensity then they might do at utmb then it just means that when they're kind of consuming carbohydrates in that form it's just it, it's just putting maybe more strain on the GI track. Whereas having it in more liquid form, one Western States is going to be it's relatively warm. Maybe might not be as warm this year, but it's still a warm ultra. So it helps with kind of that hydration and replenishment of water uh, of liquid. But then also it's just more of the ease of getting the carbohydrates in. Um, as you say, as an athlete, as they're working at higher intensity, the blood flow starts to deviate from the GI track. So 
when an athlete is working at high intensity, the GI tract is almost relatively quite impaired. So when you're trying to have a significant amount of carbohydrates in there, it means that the, the body can't really metabolize or kind of break that down because it's it's been impaired in terms of its function. And and now with the kind of the idea of having more and more carbohydrates, it means that it, it, you've got to kind of have a fueling strategy that's going to be kind of quite easy on the GI tract and take them pressures away. So I think that's kind of why a lot of athletes are kind of maybe swaying towards a, a more liquid form is one, to put the ease the pressure on the GI tract, but then also kind of help with the, the fluid retention. I just read an article that I think actually might have come out yesterday on the POC website um, that I don't know if you helped write the article or the interview, but they talk a lot about um, the importance of also proper hydration and how dehydration, you know, everyone knows that you should stay hydrated, but um, the article did a great job of breaking down like the increase in the blood plasma volume and how that can lead to, a, you know, was a, a cardiovascular drift. I would love to know a little bit more about that because, you know, two of the biggest reasons why people's races at Western states, you know, fall apart are, you know, they overheat oftentimes leads to dehydration and then that exertion of effort stays the same or goes up and their power goes down. Um, or, you know, the new, the nutrition plan goes sideways oftentimes relating to the heat too. And I'm, seems like I'm learning more and more about how much of that can start from not being properly hydrated. Um, so what, you know, what can someone, you know, who's competing at Western States, what can they do to, not run into those problems um it's a full question that i, no, <laughs> I know i think i might have lumped like five questions in there because i just read the article and there's so many questions in my head but we could start with just the you know the dehydration element um in relation to the blood plasma volume yeah so you say hydration station status is is pretty much essential you kind of want to make sure especially when it's hot but even if it's cool to have a kind of a constant stream of fluids to kind of help kind of replenish that and a big factor of that is to kind of help really just with kind of the regulation um of kind of the, the body to kind of metabolize the carbohydrates but also just for the muscle function and a big component is when an athlete is exercising especially somebody in the western state it's going to be hot they'll need to kind of have optimized kind of the thermoregulatory response and a way to do that is to kind of be efficient in, in sweating mm -hmm. to kind of help kind of control up the, the kind of the heat temperature and if you as soon as you kind of start to kind of have a low kind of like fluid um, fluid intake then that kind of the sweat rate would go down which then means your thermoregulatory system would most probably start to kind of drift and you will get then the things like cardiac drift and because it means that the, the body has to kind of work harder you've got high temp core body temperature and the whole kind of purpose is to kind of control that body temperature because the body is relatively some in some cases quite inefficient in the sense of for it to kind of produce mechanical work work it needs to produce heat and that's kind of one of the biggest kind of outputs of exercise is the heat generation and during a long prolonged period of a race let's say like an ultra endurance race that kind of heat production is going to be relatively quite high and then if you're going to put some athletes in some almost like a sauna environment then it just means that it's just going to create greater strain on the body so by controlling the core body temperature means that they can relatively yeah maximize performance 
I'd love to have some conversations around protein and caffeine as well. Like we, I think Tom Evans published this on social media a few weeks ago saying something to the effect of high caffeine works like this high caffeine nutritional strategy works. And I would love to know your thoughts on that. Like based on what you've seen Tom do in training and maybe other athletes, is there like a surprisingly new threshold that you can get away with in terms of hourly caffeine intake that might surprise listeners and viewers? Um, it, yeah, caffeine's really relative to the individual. You get some people where they are responders, you get some that aren't responders, and it's not as kind of clean throat. But with caffeine, it is tricky, especially with like in a hot environment. There is like yes, it can improve your performance, but also caffeine is a thermoregulator, so it means that it can Im- increase your corporeal temperature when you ingest mm-hmm. caffeine. So I think a lot of the work with Tom is kind of understanding like the like maximizing the caffeine intake without kind of compromising that kind of thermoregulatory control. So yeah, it's a it, it's almost like a bit of a trade off in the sense of you've got to make sure that you. If, if you are a responder and you enjoy kind of the, the components of the, the benefits of caffeine, that you kind of use it in the, almost at the appropriate kind of time points. So if it's going to be safe, most probably in a really kind of hot environment, then you must probably caffeine intake would want to kind of be relatively reduced. But then that doesn't mean once you kind of maybe come out of that, that ridiculously hot environment um, and you kind of need that pickup, then you can almost resort to the caffeine. So it's a... It, again, it's really hard to say you could have, everyone can have, say, 120 milligrams of caffeine yeah. per hour because that's, it's not the case. Everyone's kind of individual. Some people get benefits off caffeine, maybe having 50 milligrams per hour. Some people might have it where they need a bigger intake. And I guess what, what are some of these benefits from caffeine during you know, ultra-endurance events? I think a big aspect is more like the perception you kind of get, feel more alert, like... If you're running for like anything from eight to fourteen to twenty hours, mm. the kind of that perception, that that fatigue, that kind of um, neuromuscular fatigue, but also just the um, psychological fatigue takes its toll. And like caffeine, it can just kind of it's more just a, from a, a pick me up. It just gives the athletes something when it gets maybe to a technical component of the course. They know they need to be a bit more wary. That's kind of where the caffeine can be used to just kind of make kind of yeah increase their alertness a little bit more now i'm starting to think about like morton's entire product range um i guess <laughs> are we talking I, hydrogels now <laughs> I, I i did have a hydrogel collect. so well correct me if i'm wrong but the hydrogels are glucose and fructose right um are they mostly glue and then the drink mix is fructose and maltodextrin yeah so we, our hydrogel product so there's like you've got the carbohydrates and the hydrogels are almost like a separate component but that's what creates so we have drink mixes which are used multidextrin and fructose and then the gels use glucose and fructose why is that um, in terms of the ingredient differences it's very much for for the drink mixes is just for the the osmolarity so if you it's just to reduce the the osmolarity of the 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 carbohydrate drinks if it had say glucose in if it, so yeah it's just a way but in terms of how your body metabolizes a multi-dejection to glucose it's relatively um, there's not really that much difference it's pretty similar yeah okay but the, and then fructose is added in because that is absorbed through a different pathway yeah okay. so your body kind of has a like a limit where from the research it's kind of said that anything from say like one to 1.1 grams per and um, per uh, 
grams per minute of ca- uh, of glucose can be kind of be can be transported through mm-hmm. the glucose um, transporters and by using multiple transporters it means that once say the glucose transporter is uh, um, saturated then you can get kind of carbohydrates so fructose which uses a different transporter through a different avenue so it's just kind of like thinking of it as almost like a road or like traffic it's like you've got one road which kind of directs all of the glucose and then you've got another road that directs all of like mm. fructose so if you've got a big traffic on say the the glucose then it's kind of going to get kind of a backlog and what you bypass. don't want to have is pardon? like a bypass exactly yeah it's just kind of like yeah bypassing the the glucose transports do you know, are there any third lanes that exist? Like, is there a third way to... You talking about ketones? I didn't you say ketones. You talking about ketones? I was just asking if there was any <laughs> any research on any third lanes for carbohydrate or other various energy uh, intake lanes. Sources. Just wondering if there's, is, if Martin been looking into ways to expand the freeway? Um, there, well, like there's, there's ketones, but there's an, almost like in a different form. But I think when we're looking at purely from a carbohydrate perspective, it, no, the, they're almost, you have got them lanes, but there is a capacity to almost increase kind of the, that, or not, not only the tolerance, but the transportability. So what we're starting to see now, especially from the elite athletes, is they're able to tolerate not only high carbohydrate intake, but the body's able to do a lot more with that carbohydrates. Mm. And if you look at some of the research that's done been previously, it's very much a sense of like sometimes maybe someone who's like the everyday athlete, the, that maybe that 90 grams of carbohydrates could be relatively opt- optimum for them. And that's kind of based off what the research has, has said, like 90 grams yeah. of carbohydrates. But now when we're looking at, say, from an elite perspective, from what we're seeing is they're able to tolerate and also metabolize and utilize more than 90 grams getting close to that 100 really? to 120 wow. I, I, I want to ask you a philosophical question because brett has talked about this a lot as it relates to heat training like brett made this prediction that with all the resources we have available today you can in the technology you can kind of solve for the heat at western states like with all of the topical cooling strategies etc you can kind of solve for that and make yourself stay cool throughout the day as it relates to nutrition because you talked about tom it being a very personal thing with caffeine in what in how short a window can an athlete figure out exactly what they need from a nutritional standpoint to not run into as many gi issues on race day or is it Mm, sort of like a lifelong thing where like you're always going to be tinkering and you're always going to be fine-tuning you know what i mean like in, in how short a window could someone nail this if they looked at all the research out there they ran the tests on themselves they were in morton labs and stuff like that like can you train the gut? Can you train the gut and can you figure out your gut in like, for example, like a two month window and then be solved for the rest of your like career? Um, I don't think you'd be completely solved. Like the problem is you must probably be able to achieve, achieve more, but there's always like more you can do. But I think in like the short period of time, say that two month window, you could achieve quite a lot. What you tend to find is athletes, they kind of the carbohydrate or GI tolerance, maybe start off relatively low, but with a, an appropriate kind of gut trainability protocol, it'll you can significantly increase your, your carbohydrate tolerance and the one of the benefits of kind of the molten products is it gives you almost that greater starting point because the molten products with the hydrogel technology um helps with the delivery of carbohydrates and relieves a lot of the pressure of the gi track it means that you could most probably um, start with a greater in, increase of carbohydrates with the hydrogel technology than that carbohydrates that don't have the hydrogel technology 
but you could always most probably maximize and get a little bit more. What does a gut training protocol look like? Like what are the elements of it? It's very much quite similar to like a normal kind of training protocol where you have like your intensity and your load. What you really want to start with a good training protocol is identify what your tolerance is. So it might say start off of maybe I can tolerate quite comfortably 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. But maybe for Western states, you want to get close to that 90 to 100 grams of carbohydrates. And it's very much just kind of following a, a typical kind of training program. You want to slowly increase your carbohydrate intake during the sessions. And what you want to do is kind of and play around with when you want to have them key almost like carbohydrate sessions. So you might have like uh, overcompensation sessions where it would be very just quite a low intensity. But during that session, you might have maybe 20 to 25% more carbohydrates than what you would uh, um, be aiming for. And that's kind of just to kind of train the gut, put a greater stress on the gut. Um, and then, yeah, and then help kind of help it kind of be utilized. What you sometimes don't want to do is start off almost like you've got, say, your key kind of specific kind of sessions, train, really trying to maximize the carbohydrate intake in them sessions, because what you don't want to do is have a massive impact on the, the session. So if you do get GI issues, then it will. So it's just playing around with using, you have, say, your ultra marathon um, specific sessions, and then you might have like a medium long run in the, in the week where it's very much just like a time on your feet. They're the sessions where you kind of want to overcompensate and mm. kind of maximize the intake. Is there a is there a max amount of fluid that like my gut could absorb per hour, or is that something that could also be trained? Because um, I always hear, especially at Western states, like there was just no amount that I could drink to keep up with how much I was sweating. How much of that is just humans being humans versus something that you could potentially increase over the course of your training. You, yeah, you could always increase your tolerance and your uptake, but there most probably is going to be a limit. And that limit might be individual for everybody. But if you're looking at, say, the ultra, the chances are you're never going to be able to completely replenish all of, say, the carbohydrates and the, fl the fluid during the race. It's just because, you, like you say, with the, the increase in sweat rate and the utilization of your glycogen, it's, it's probably going to be very difficult to do that. Yeah. But, but you could get relatively quite close. So, like, if, if Brett's my coach, hypothetically, if on a given Saturday he gives me a two-hour run, he might also prescribe, like, I want you to fuel 70 carbohydrates, grams of carbohydrate per hour, and then the next week, as he ramps up the long run to three hours, he might say, oh, in addition, I want you to test 80 grams of carbohydrate per hour on that run. Is that kind of how you would see the ramp up? Like, over the course of seven days, you would increase it by 10 grams per, per hour? Yeah, depending, as you say, you want to make sure that you're reviewing after that session to say, like, see how you get response. So say if you, that session, you, you, did, you had the 60, and you felt like it just, it felt like a little bit more pressure on the GI track, and you felt a bit more uncomfortable. Then that week would be very much more, if you did have maybe like shorter sessions or just a shorter run, again, sometimes you don't need, you might think that you need to fuel for that specific session, but what you're doing is, say, if you're just going for an hour run, like a midweek, you could have a really kind of aggressive carbohydrate intake just to kind of maximize the intake. What you want to do is, really stress the GI track when it's uh, almost at during that low intensity kind of sessions. And then once you've kind of overstressed the GI track and then low intensity and you've got that adaptation, then you can start to kind of embed that in within the, the actual kind of like ultramarathon specific workouts. 
This has been so great. How about protein? Can we talk protein? Because we're starting to see a lot of gels out on the market that are marketing the benefits of, you know, having somewhere between one and call it three or four grams of protein. Maybe it could be per hour on the run and that will help not necessarily mid run, but in facilitating recovery post run. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? And talk maybe about Morton's decision to either include protein in some of their mixes or to leave it out explicitly. Yeah. So there's a bit of research showing that having anything from like five to 10 grams of protein per hour can help with kind of like um, supporting like the, the muscle recovery. So by having almost like micro dosages during a ultra, um, ultra endurance event, it almost will kind of stimulate protein synthesis. So of that stimulation, it means it kind of help maybe with the regeneration and also the recovery. So there is research that, that's starting to support that, but it's really still in its infancy. So mm. for us at Morton, we, we do like, we have development products that are targeting that and the most probably some will be used, but it's very much a, for us is because the, the research is in its infancy, we don't want to kind of release a product where we don't truly know it's going to either improve the athlete's performance and health. And that's maybe sometimes the, some frustration for some people where say, oh, we have a very limited product range, but a lot of R&D and time goes into the products and we want to make sure that they, they truly do work. Yeah, what what's the typical time frame look like for a Morton product going from yeah. maybe an idea to R&D to actually Prototype. hitting the shelves? What's the testing window usually like, or has it varied from product to product? Yeah, it, it varies in terms of its, its complexity. So if we look at the bicarb, that was almost a, a two and a half year project. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had athletes, once we kind of, we did a lot of chemistry formulation, internal work, did a lot of laboratory um, testing um, internally. Once we kind of got happy with the formulation and kind of its performance, we then would um, kind of go out to our athletes and, look at more and we have some like the best guinea pigs in the world so we tested with them but it was almost in almost like in the testing phase for about 18 months before it went um, live commercially and we had athletes that kind of still won olympic gold medals world championships and broke world records so but the main kind of the importance for us is to make sure that when we do develop a product it's we're kind of very happy for it before we then release it to um, the elite athletes and kind of we then get feedback on them, see how they use it, get a good understanding of the product. And then once we really truly understand the product, then we'll release it um, to, the, to the mass market. So yeah, like if, for the bicarb, it's maybe a two and a half year um, project. For some of our other products, that could be maybe a year. Mm-hmm. But we would ne- we'd never most probably turn something ground in maybe like two to three months because what we want to do with our products is to have a, a good understanding of like how it be used in a full training cycle and then also within a race. And some of our products that might be used in different in, um, situations. So say for cycling, we want to get a CO, uh, we want to understand how it's used within a cycling season, how, say for the ultra marathons. We want to like understand how it's both used, say, within Western States, but then UTMB, they're both completely different events. And that takes time. We can't just replicate and, say, get an athlete to go on the treadmill and simulate that in the lab. We really need to be out there in the field, and that's kind of like what we're, we're doing now is some of our products, they are in development, and we really want to kind of stress test them as much as possible. Has the, the research and development side of Morton uh, grown in the last 
few years as the I guess as the product line has as well. Yeah, we we still have quite a small team um, in our like the R and D team, but yeah, like the team has is growing like as Morton as a company as a whole has grown exponentially, um, which has been really exciting. But again, in terms of from an R and D perspective, we're still quite um, controlled in kind of how we approach um, our product development. And yeah, we don't want to just kind of create things for the sake of creating things. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why we want to have quite a tight knit R&D development team just to make sure that we, yeah, we're doing the right things the right way. Like we have a a really good head of researcher, Martin Off, and he comes from the medical background and his kind of approach to kind of answering answering um, problems and solving problems is uh, really unique. So it's kind of like making sure we kind of protect kind of that thought, that thought process and yeah, make sure we do things properly. I think one question I have, and it's, it's probably just acknowledging some viewers, some listeners out there who are naturally skeptical. Are there any interesting or compelling cases in the literature that you've seen against hydrogel technology or, or the bicarb product that you think are worth stating and then maybe offering a counter argument to? Um, yeah, so I think in the early days of like the hydrogel technology and kind of it, when it was researched, a lot of the research kind of really showed that it wasn't um, shown to have a, have a performance benefit or it wasn't shown to um, reduce the athlete's GI symptoms. But then when we looked at kind of a lot of the research, it was very much specifically on that it all came down to the exercise intensity. And a big mm. part of my PhD was very much looking at how carbohydrate um, intake is affected by exercise intensity and what the optimum dose is. And what you find is that as exercise, in, what traditionally was thought is that as exercise increases, GI response increases like linearly. But that's not really the case. What happens is as exercise intensity increases, GI response increases like monotonically. It's almost like there's a step. So I think mm-hmm. it was like LT1, LT2. And what you see is most probably from anything from 50% to 60%, the athletes can tolerate a large amount of carbohydrates. They can, they're not going to, it doesn't really matter how much carbohydrates they, they consume. The GI, um, they're able to kind of metabolize that and the GI tolerance is relatively quite high. They won't get that much GI issues. But once the exercise intensity kind of goes to maybe above 65%, mm. that's when it kind of increases quite drastically. And that's where you get a significant increase um, in GI responses. And mm. when we looked at the research, if you looked at the methodologies, it was very much on that lower intensity. So it was really hard to almost like stress test the hydrogel technology because the intensity was so low. And that's really why we, we, they never really saw uh, a performance benefit, um, not only between the, the hydrogel technology, but also with the, the, the GI tolerance of the athletes. Um, but there's there's research now out there, and I've become part of my PhD, was very much driven on understanding the hydrogel technology and kind of how it works. And yeah, and there is evidence now that's shown. And a, a big, big factor is, yes, we have like scientific evidence um, that shows that the technology works. We have done like MRI studies to really understand how the hydrogel forms in the stomach. Um, so really, would, and we're still in that kind of like development phase, but I think it just comes down to the athlete's, um, uh, like the athlete response. Like we've fueled like every world marathon major winner, an Olympic and world champion. Elliot Kipchoge, right? Exactly, yeah, from 2017. That's male and female. 
we're very dominant within cycling we're very mm. dominant now within ultra running and a big factor of that is just because how the hydrogel delivers the carbohydrates and and for us at morning it's really difficult because when you look at say a gel or a drink mix of sachets they look relatively similar to kind of a traditional carbohydrate gel or drink mix mm -hmm. but how the hydrogel delivers the carbohydrates through the gi track is completely different and the function there is different so for us that uh, we get the, the validation from the elite athletes like we know it works um but and we have now have the scientific data but at the same time it would be good to uh hey, have more isn't there like a i think it's the hydrogel isn't it like the origin story of the hydrogel like a accidental invention i thought there was something regarding like uh, dentists or something like that are you able yeah. to tell that story yeah it's that good knowledge um yeah it very much started from the co-founder one of the co-founders and the ceo yeah he went to the the dentist and the the dentist kind of said you, you must like he knew he was kind of taking part in um endurance sport just because of his dental hygiene has been significantly impaired and he thought of a way of uh, yeah thought of a way of how to kind of um still consume large quantities of carbohydrates without having a massive impact on the dental hygiene and the one of the the co-founders um is had a background in kind of um um, uh, in a kind of drug technology mm. as a cancer researcher and he thought if they could take the hydrogel technology that what's been used in the medical industry since like the 1980s and utilize that within a sporting context would that be able to kind of mitigate a lot of the dental impact and what they found there is that yeah they was able to kind of mitigate a lot of the dental impact helped kind of improve dental hygiene which again if we're coming back to ultra endurance event that's one of the biggest stresses that goes um, on the bodies yes like you get massive muscular strengths your gi system goes through a massive stress because it's processing but the mouth goes through a significant stress as well yes mm. um you must probably know like athletes they they tend to have pretty poor dent especially endurance athletes pretty poor dental hygiene and that's just because really when you're ingesting large quantities of carbohydrates you're just ingesting sugar so it is naturally going to have a an impact and yeah one of the benefits of like the the hydro technology is it alleviates that um so yeah what would it, it all happened relatively quite quick they they created the, the first kind of initial prototypes realized that it would work within, within within dental hygiene and then they started to kind of figure out quite early on that because the hydrogel delivers the carbohydrates um differently and is able to kind of help with the transport transportability through the gi track they thought actually it could maybe be beneficial for say endurance athletes and actually one of the kind of the first group of athletes to ever test the product um was Ken Obesi during the, the sub two attempt. So there was a sub two attempt before the Knight did the break in two attempt. And the sub two attempt was led by a researcher called Giannis Pistalis. And he um, wanted like the first group of athletes to break the sub two hour marathon in kind of normal conditions. Mm. And there's a big project. So Morton got in contact with them and just said, we have this kind of this technology, can you test it? So it's crazy to think like one of the first athletes was most probably one of the best in the world. and really from that moment once they kind of tested it kind of used to be Kaylee really struggled to ingest carbohydrates and then it was almost immediately he went from it able to ingest nothing to a large quantity wow and then it kind of spread almost a bit like like crazy like wildfire all through the elite mm. athletes so and that's kind of where we are to now like where we are today we have 
almost like a large predominantly of the the endurance field from running cycling mm -hmm. to ironman to ultra running it's we have a big dominance and it all comes down to just the technology and how it delivers the carbohydrates i think we've probably got time for one more question from each of us before some final thoughts i think did you have a follow-up to that no that was i just wanted to hear the story that was fantastic <laughs> that was fantastic yeah. yeah i think maybe my final question to you has to do with the taste of these products and, and it's really about the taste of any products in general you when you ask athletes why they use a particular product one of the first things for them is like you know i i enjoy the taste of it i, I look forward to eating it or drinking it but you know a part of me wonders like how important is that factor in the fueling process and maybe are there some ingredients in certain products that actually like make it taste better but over time can actually undermine like the the, the benefits of that gel or that liquid and um did morton come up with a specific taste because they realized that like the combination of that taste and all the other ingredients in our products like that makes for like the most efficient and sustainable um fueling strategy um i think that the taste really just comes from speaking with the athletes and a big premise really for the hydrogel technology to work it needs a, a pure ingredients good quality of ingredients but then also a really reduced ingredient list and if you look at the morton products they rarely have a very small ingredient ingredient list um and the big factor is that we don't include anything that is not there or not needed or doesn't have a function and <clears throat> when it comes to like taste and and flavor when we spoke to a lot of athletes they they didn't want anything they didn't want flavor because that kind of almost like takes away from the performance and especially from an endurance event what you tend to find is your your taste buds fluctuate quite drastically so something you might really enjoy at a low intensity or the first couple of hours of a race by the time you've got three or four hours in it's the last almost the last thing you'd want to have um, and the idea really of having a neutral taste is that we want to make sure that athletes consist consistently fuel throughout the throughout the duration of the event um, and have consistent periods of fueling not have a right i had a really good the first two hours and then i didn't like the taste and then i kind of slipped for like two hour mi middle period and then i picked it back up it's mm -hmm. more about having that consistent fueling and when we spoke to athletes the easiest way to really manage that is to have a neutral flavor and um, because it means that yeah you might not um in love it at the beginning you might not love it at the end, but the, how you kind of perceive it, because it's neutral, will be pretty much consistent. And that's the whole premise is to have a consistent intake. I've always been a fan of eliminating the emotional aspect of fueling and just like, you know, my car doesn't complain or not when I fill the gas tank with fuel. It's like, what if I, what if I could just like fuel and not and be like, oh, this sucks or this is great. And it just be fuel. I, I think that's, where we're getting now especially with like ultra endurance um it is it's getting quicker like it's getting that the science is, is starting to kind of grow and it's coming down to is like for for some like for for the top end it's a event where they're not there to almost they're not there for fun yeah they they, they love the sport but they're there to kind of get performance out and mm -hmm. when it comes to kind of fueling it's just the more you can have the better and the way to have more is to kind of have it in natural neutral form and that's kind of the, the, the whole premise of it well josh it it has been such a pleasure to have you here i know i learned a ton i'm sure brett did too we're really grateful for for what you do in the sport and the testing and the results you're providing and just 
giving more clarity to the community on on how to have an enjoyable and uh, breakthrough type experience out there on the course. And I'm I'm sure there are already people racing this Saturday at Western that are deploying bits and pieces or all of what you've talked about, which is exciting. Um, we'll make sure to link to all of you know Morton's channels in the show notes of this episode. But um, are there any final thoughts you have or calls to action for uh, listeners and viewers as it relates to either Morton or just their nutrition and endurance sport in general? Um, uh, I would say a big component is definitely just looking at your kind of your electrolytes and your sodium intake. There's a big kind of argument, especially in the scientific um, literature, in the sense of it's starting to show that having a significant sodium intake can also have a negative impact on your performance. Because what, especially when you're, especially in like hot environments, the more kind of sodium you have, it can increase your sweat rate and make you a lot more salty sweater. And that can almost be quite detrimental over say a really prolonged period. And so, and I think, especially with an ultra endurance running, there's a a very much kind of a, and there's always been the case of, I need to kind of replenish my salts and my electrolytes. I need to have a high intake, but that's not relatively the case. You don't need a significant amount of sodium. The body is really well regulated and calibrated to kind of retain that. Um, and just by having more sodium, it means it just it starts to accelerate the use of sodium in the body, which mm, means you kind of will yeah will lose more. So I think that's uh, something like for us like over these like the next couple of days, we're doing a lot of testing with um with tom to kind of evaluate one his um his fluid intake and we're doing a yeah a series of tests but then also we're looking at his carbohydrate intake his glucose response his lactate we're also going to be evaluating his acid base balance and then also his electrolyte profile throughout the race so yeah like for us it's like again it's, there's there's not much research there but the research now is very much swaying away to that so we want to kind of help as much as possible are there going to be any viral moments on the Western States live stream of Tom <laughs> eating any mystery fluids that uh, people are going to be <laughs> questioning, just like Killian at Comair? Um, maybe. Ooh. Yes, maybe. Stay here first. Stay here first. Yeah. Um, there'll be definitely some blood testing, hopefully. Um, it really much depends on kind of how the race is pining out. The yeah. whole idea is we've done a series of testing now in the first initial days. So we'll get some data, even if we don't do much testing with um, Tom during the race, because again, the performance has always comes first. So if it, if it comes to a point where he can't afford to have two minutes with me to kind of take some blood and have a bit of a discussion, then that, then the things will, will definitely, will, they, they're not needed. The performance always comes first. So, but you may see some interesting things. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what, what gets, uh, you know, what we learned from Tom's experience at Western States this year. And, you know, I love that there's, you know, nutrition companies like Morton that are really pushing the boundaries uh, of performance nutrition from the emphasis of science and looking to, you know, push the sports boundaries in that way. So, yeah, thank you so much for Thank you so much. And, you know, going into the weeds a little bit with us on all things uh, endurance nutrition. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsored discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.